averto, la dad discuto on havas maturin temoin profanidad kai anne spoilers. Ia grammatico estis decidita ne enhavi dinosidan syntaxon. Auscuntanto e competente consilis. En caso de genocido fermo vian culoi, cae pensu prisombia filmo cun Thomas Edison surf submarisipo. Ridas, qui estas nu filmo. Greetings one and all to the season finale of Dub Talk's Summer at the Movies. All summer long we have been bringing you our thoughts on the English dubs of various anime films. From wolves to witches and even demons, we've had a broad spectrum of films grace our screens. But since this is the finale, how in the world are we planning on finishing it? With a bang, probably quite literally, in a sense. Uh, today we're going to be discussing our thoughts on Project Ito's genocidal organ, which was released on home video late last year. Now you might be asking yourself, wait, you introduced the movie, but who is even on this episode? Glad you ask. Uh, today we have not one, not two, not three, but five hosts joining in on the action. And these five are rather familiar with Project Ito because we've combined two groups from last year's Summer at the Movies in order to cover this third film. From the Empire of Corpses episode, my name is Stephanie and we have Megan and Lack the Watcher. Man, with the amount of time they talk about Budweiser in this movie, you thought they would have at least animated one Clydesdale. We live in a society. <laughs> That's it. And then from the Harmony episode, we have Amon and Sneebs. Copy, copy, reporting for duty. Well, it's better than Harmony. <laughs> yes. I should, I, I, I should note, I do like this movie. I'm just bitter I wasn't on the episode where a man fist fights a Frankenstein monster. That's really all I want out of life. <laughs> I mean... That I is a movie that'll take you out of a bad bit. mood. Yep. <laughs> I hope this one makes up for it at least a little bit. (laughs) Oh, it does. It's much better. Yes. (laughs) All right. Now, if you are not familiar with this film, here's a quick little summary. After a homemade bomb decimates the... Wow. I forgot how to pronounce this city already. Sarajevo? Sarajevo. Sarajevo. Stradivarius. After a bomb decimates Sarajevo, developed countries rely on advanced surveillance to free them from the threat of terrorism. While the United States enjoys heightened security, the nations it once considered threatening are mysteriously plagued by genocide within their own borders. Strangely, these massacres all link back to one American by the name of John Paul. Special Agent Clovey's Shepard is sent to capture the elusive target, but even with combat meds to numb the pain and a life rooted in the bliss of ignorance, nothing can prepare this soldier, or the world, for the truth behind humanity's darkness. As always, we're going to be discussing the film, including the casting and our thoughts and opinions on the performances of the English dub as a whole. It's time to deploy for our mission, ladies and gentlemen, but first... We need to speak to our commanding officers and be briefed on our assignments. So let us start with the ADR director and the scriptwriter, the wonderful folks at the helm. And, uh, I don't know how else to introduce this. I don't know how else to introduce this. Our dad? (laughs) No. 
You He's are my dad. dad. You're my dad. Stop it. Woogie, woogie, woogie. No, no. Oh, God. Our supreme no. lord and master? <laughs> the generalissimo himself. No, what's funny is, wasn't it this time around this time last year where the announce the casting announcement for this came up? <laughs> I don't remember. And then we're all like, "What the fuck?" Because mm -hmm. um, nobody, nobody, I think expected this. Nobody, nobody expects the uh, the Chapin Inquisition, the Clifford Chapin Inquisition, because he is serving as our ADR director. Uh, and if I am correct, this is actually his first film that he's directed, but you might be familiar with other works from him, such as Darling in the Franks, Gosick, and Planetarian. Meanwhile, scriptwriter is Miss Deborah Crane, who has written for series such as Konohana Kiton, Sailor Moon Crystal, and lo and behold, she also wrote for Harmony. Lo and behold, Appropriate. As we suddenly get flashbacks for two members of this group. <coughs> Suffering. Woohoo. I still haven't seen that film. Um, anyway, right. so, Lack, could you start us off? What are your thoughts on the ADR director and the script writing on this film? Well, looking at it right now, I kind of wish that I had watched the Japanese version too, because I would have liked to have seen how much Deborah adapted from the original Japanese and how mm -hmm. much was added in the English. Right. Because I mean, I don't know how much of like the product placement quote unquote was in the was in the original Japanese with like references to Starbucks and <laughs> the Big Mac. Yeah. The Big Mac metaphor. Well, okay, you actually brought it up, you know, uh, in mention and I really wanted to talk about it for a second. The Spanish Inquisition reference. Yes. This, this is yes. something that really weirded me out because honestly when I first heard that, my first thoughts were did J. Michael Tatum write this? I, I don't uh, but and then after that, they they called back to it later on. So that mm -hmm. made me think, wait, was this in the original Japanese? Lo and behold, Megan actually did some research just before we started recording. It's not. What was the answer? It's not. Oh, it's not. I would <laughs> have loved not, to have heard broken if I'm English. Right, if I'm right, it's the scene when they uh, break in with the in, uh, in the Indian government, right? Yeah, right. I, be yeah. I believe so. But see, the fact that they called back to it made me think that it was in the original Japanese and it wasn't just a throwaway line. But I mm -hmm. guess it was. So. But, uh, um, in that sense, it's actually really impressive that they were able to get away with all these references. And uh, it sort of worked. Because, honestly, it's very rare to hear in anime so many actual real-world products be mentioned. Right. And uh, Clifford Chapin, I mean, he's a great director no matter what. I, I love a lot of the stuff he does. But, um... Yeah, and, and something that really stood out to me for this dub in particular is how normal everybody sounded. Yeah. And often, I, I understand in a lot of anime dubbing that sometimes you gotta, like, exaggerate your voice a little bit to fit the character. And that's great. I love that. But in an anime like this, I like it that they went the extra mile to make everybody sound like regular, you know, just normal people sounding actors. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's that was a really strong element to it. I think... The, the the fact that everybody even though you can kind of you can hear you can, you can hear certain actors voices you can identify people obviously based on the way they talk um, some I won't mention because I don't want to spoil it but at the same time it's like they sounded like themselves and that was really great because it added a, a layer of sincerity to the whole dub and that's something I really liked so yeah those are my thoughts okay. Almond, would you go next? 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I liked I liked what uh, Clifford and Deborah did on this. I thought, um, sort of dub-wise, this falls in that category of, you know, it's a very dialogue-heavy movie. You'll have whole scenes that are two characters talking about Noam Chomsky or some other thing I didn't expect to see in an anime this year. Um, yeah. And, uh, obviously, like, I feel like, you know, a lot of times that can be very hard because you have to, you know, keep people's attention and sell it to them and so on, and there's not necessarily something flashy going on to help that along. And given that, I thought they did a very good job of making, like, selling that aspect of the story. Like, like I was talking about, I think this, this is a very... These are very grounded performances. They sound a lot like actual people. They're not as cartoony as stuff you might get in, you know, uh, you know, other shows and movies that are a little less realistic, but more fantastical. Empire uh, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Watch an actual know. British I mean, adventurer. It's grounded in Empire of Corpses to me, but yeah. well, it's, to, it's, to a point. Yeah. To a point. It's an alternate like history timeline shit going on that one. <laughs> It's that it's that it's that movie where it turns out the little mute boy is actually James Bond because why not? Because <laughs> fuck you, that's why. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I, I I appreciate that a lot. Like this felt like the sort of uh, kind of slow contem- contemplative drama that I often enjoy, but I generally feel like I don't see in anime all that often. And I thought they did a very mm-hmm. good job of crafting a dub for it that felt appropriate to that and also was fun to listen to. Uh, you know, like, it's not all dour. There are jokes, Spanish Inquisition stuff, and so on. Uh, and it just, it felt, it felt good. It was fun to listen to, which, especially for something like this, I think is important to kind of keep the audience's attention that way. Okay. Yeah. Megan? Uh, yeah, for a lot of the, uh, I guess I want to say, I want to say, like, more important characters, uh, they all, they cast a lot of, like, really... Uh, good people who have really good natural speaking voices that can carry a dialogue heavy film and I do appreciate Clifford Chapin's um, choices that he made one of the things I really want to commend the dub on is the use of language tracks that Mm -hmm. it used because uh, not only will you hear English you will also hear Chinese, Czech, German yeah um, that was really interesting Spanish and I couldn't tell if they were naturally there that came with the Japanese audio and just uh, adjusted through the mixing process that Funimation has to change uh, I, I think Steph and Amon will remember this when we went down last year um, mm-hmm. Japan uses one type of audio and then we use another and they just switch a lot of sound effects over through it mm-hmm. uh, Oh yeah. or if they actually got people who could speak these languages to come in and record this background lines, which is a technique that I haven't 100% necessarily seen Clifford Chapin use as a director, not because he doesn't do it, but I don't think a lot of the shows that he works on... He hasn't really been given yeah, much opportunity. Yeah, they did that they, in Garo Vanishing Line, right? But that was Caitlin Glass, not That was, yeah. that was Caitlin, though. But here's the, here's the interesting thing to bring up, and I know you're talking about, like, other languages. You're talking about completely, like, spoken other languages, not just, like, not just dialects Japanese. and accents. No, right. I mean, like, actual, like... With like, subtitles. Su- like, with so, subtitles, ex- or, like, for- it would be just in the natural environment, not necessarily that it's important to the scene, but, like, right. there's an announcement on the radio in, Ger- in like, German or Czech, because yeah. okay. it's in Prague or something, or it's, like, okay. a train announcement I- announcing to get off at, like, a certain station... Yeah. But I couldn't I, tell the difference is if it right. was 
someone that they brought in just to re-record the line who happened to speak the language or if it came from the Japanese uh, track, which is a accommodation not only for uh, the directing team, but the mixing and the sound teams uh, mm -hmm. as well. Because um, a lot of this movie does rely on sound to get a lot of it across. This is yes. a film that I actually had a really hard time telling some characters apart because the lighting in the actual animation is very dark. Yeah. That right. is, that's and Clavis is very generic looking. Yes, so. everyone's also very <laughs> generic looking. Except Fitting for, uh, especially, like, mm. if you put those helmets on all of them, they're the same fucking person. Yeah, they all look like person. the same yeah. fucking person. That's that the fault the of the animation. Yeah, that is the point. Like, that, that's a fault of the animation. Except for, <laughs> except for uh, kind of our love interest, who is the most well-designed character in the movie. Right. Uh, well, I kind of, I kind of get what Sneeves is saying here with it being the point in the whole yeah. and the aspect of the the entire theme of the film is the idea of just being a cog in the machine of, you know, kind of yeah, yeah, of like and, being under the foot of the government and stuff like that. So making bureaucracy look, bad, yeah, <laughs> like having them all, you know, you enjoy all the killing. That's why, brother. No. Uh, <laughs> please, that brother, pass. let me live in ignorance and eat only half of this Big Mac. Le enfant terrible. <laughs> uh, the Big Mac thing. Oh but my like, god. I do have to really agree with Black, too, though, that the right, the adaptation writing, um, this is a movie that I wish I had a little bit more time to go back and watch the subtitles with, but I feel like if I would have watched the subtitle version, I would have been like, okay, holy shit, I can't focus on, like, what's actually happening and the dialogue because of the way that the characters are designed. Mm. And but I really do want to condemn uh this is a really good solid movie dub. Um all I think like all of the other Ito dubs, it is very well put together. So I don't have much more to say. If there's an, ever an anime that needed an English dub, it would be this one. So Yes. It really did. Mm. Dialogue heavy anime is very hard to watch with subtitles. Yeah. This yeah. is why I'm very much looking forward to finally getting to check out Concrete Revolutio in October. Huzzah! Uh, Sneeves, what are your thoughts on the directing and writing? I found that this is a thing that revolves around naturalism. This right. whole show is, or this whole movie, is rooted one half hour from now, talking about real-world po uh, politics as viewed from the year 2006 when the novel was written and projecting into the future that uh, what these technical innovations would mean for things mm -hmm. like geopolitics, nationhood, soldiering, and all that. And to try and make these people who are soldiers who have been drugged to have low affect and yet still behave like people would take would require more less melodramatic and more naturalistic sounds which they captured excellently the banter about you know having a big mac or making a spanish inquisition quip whilst we enter into a room full of war criminals at gunpoint holding them at gunpoint is the kind of grounding that something that goes into high concept wackiness like the safir wharf hypothesis and chomskyan uh biolinguistic grammar as part of the setting, you need a groundedness to count that from becoming too floaty, airy-fairy. So right. having the dialogue sound naturalistic, which uh, Deborah Crane really brought out here and Clifford Chapin teased out excellently, uh, 
makes this work well. Uh, I'm in agreement with what everyone else has said here before. It sounds like people in a professional context mm -hmm. talking at work and play about their lives and the issues they deal with. Okay. I get what you're saying. Uh, so, if anything, this film is probably one that I've seen basically in the longest while that's very, very deep rooted in philosophical themes and some political themes as well. And it is a dialogue heavy film. And when I first watched it, when I, I when I first got the film and I first watched it, I will admit it, it was a little bit difficult to follow it on the first watch. I had an easier time this the second time around. Um, I know Megan was confused all the fucking hell as to what was going on today. <laughs> like, is X character dead or not yet? Is X character dead? Is this just someone's PTSD? And I'm like, no and no. No. Is generic <laughs> but, um, white man 47 dead yet? <laughs> what about this one? No. But um, considering how complex of a theme this film is... And given the timeline here that this was probably put into production, because we got, we got the announcement of the casting about a year ago from around this point, and if I'm correct, Cliff became a full-time director at Funimation the year prior to that. So, and again, like I was saying before, if I'm right, also right, this is his first film that he's worked on. So, there's a lot of things going, coming into play for him here, and I mean, let's face it, when the announcement came up, I, like probably everyone else, didn't think or would believe that he was a director on this, but obviously he's done a lot more work since then and has blown everyone out of the water, but in terms of this film and in terms of his directing, his style that he's been developing over the past couple of years, I think was really, really suited to this very dialogue, philosophical, political heavy sh film. And to the point where this to me is probably the most complex and mature project that he's ever worked on. Um, probably the next closest thing might be Darling in the Franks, but that one's another animal entirely because <laughs> there's so much going on with it. And I, I hear the cackles, I hear the goddamn cackles, but it's fucking true. Um, but this is probably one of the more dark and complex stories that he's got to work with. And considering all of that and probably the time and effort he took into it, because my my general consensus when looking at Cliff as a director, he really puts the time and effort into what he does. Um, and this really shows it here with how natural the dialogue sounded, with how with the performances, how you can see those transform those characters transform themselves in terms of personality and mentality. Clavis in particular, when we get to him at the end, um, is one of those big things. And so the direction, I absolutely love it. It's definitely one of the more most mature and dark and complex things I've ever seen Cliff work on, and I enjoy it a lot. As for Deborah Crane and her writing, I have to agree with everybody else has said, it sounds very naturalistic, that it's not... The dialogue isn't rooted in absurdity. 
it keeps the philosophical and existential crisis for some of these characters too very very naturally and I know we've brought up the product placement, quote unquote, bits like the Starbucks and the half-eaten Big Mac I was really and all this just stuff. A joke. I didn't. I don't. No, really I know. It. No, but here's here's the other thing though to consider. If I'm correct, and I rewatched this a few hours ago, those lines in particular were all from one character, and that's Williams. And considering Williams's personality, it actually works for his character. All things considered, because Williams is. He's he's a tough guy who just wants his sense of normalcy in this world. He like the big thing with Williams and we'll get to him a little bit later is he doesn't want his wife and child to un- to see or know about the shit that's going on in the world. That's why he's doing what he's doing. Uh and particularly in the climax of the film, but using some of those weird jokes and stuff like that the spanish inquisition one mostly comes to mind here given william's personality and his behavior it actually works to his character's benefit so it didn't actually seem out of place so i was very surprised when when megan took a quick look to see if that joke was still in there and it wasn't so i was like oh interesting so (laughs) if you didn't watch the japanese you wouldn't notice those changes because since all those small like product placement things and the spanish inquisition thing was basically william's it actually worked for his character. So those small add, add-ins or flips around, it actually worked, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, but overall, direction writing, very, very solid. And uh, I would love, 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 love to see Cliff tackle another very, very dark and mature show or film in the near future. That's just me. I know he needs a breather right now because he spent six months on Darling in the Franks. <laughs> He needs something lighthearted right now, but thankfully he does. But um, anyway, are we good to move on? I just want to say one more characters. thing. Shout out to the direction of the football game scenes because the audio yes. to that yes. sounded straight. That out was of beautiful. Mm. That was beautiful. How if the only they could have actually just gotten John Madden to do it. <laughs> He's not a ref. True. <laughs> He's not even working ever. anymore. He retired. Oh. I don't even think he's in the games anymore. <laughs> anyway get at sorry. Hockley John Madden John Madden <laughs> 2006 with a hell of a drug snarky anyway <laughs> <laughs> alright are we good to move on to our first set of characters yes Yeah. thankfully this is going to be a short episode because we only have five sections and two of those sections are pairs of characters. The first pair we're gonna be play, we're gonna be discussing and playing with here, are two feller soldiers that are in Clavis Shepard's unit. Um, one is Alex, the other is Leland. Uh, spoilers: they both die at some point in the film. Horrific depending death, on actually. what, depending on the time frame, though, one dies sooner than the other. Um, so. It's very interesting because Alex's character, he's you, you he dies within the first 15 minutes, spoilers, but he kind of is this kickstart for this philosophical themes a little bit. Because um, I'm not going to lie, I love the little, the little monologue, dialogue discussion about how hell is in your mind. Your mind is what, you're, if you're imagining hell, it's your mind, it's your own head. Fear is the mind and, killer. Sorry. Exactly. <laughs> and then Leland, we we get in the beginning, but we see him a little bit more later on uh, in a couple later missions where he's... The, the vibe I got off of Leland is 
he's more of the typical soldier who will just fight to the bitter end. Uh, spoilers, he also dies. Uh, <laughs> he dies while firing a, what is it, a machine gun with an arm and a leg missing or some shit. <laughs> like, he's still Both. going until he bleeds out. It's Cut like, what the Basically. Um, but anyway, the two individuals voicing these characters as the voice of Leland, we have Mr. Joel McDonald, who has been in series such as The Ancient Magus Bride, Drifters, and the Funimation dub of The Vision of Escaflone. As for Alex, uh, it, actually our ADR director comes into play here. Clifford Chapin is voicing Alex. He's been in series such as Attack on Titan, Gangsta, and Psychopaths 2. Lack, would you like to get us started on your thoughts on these two characters? Uh, sure. Not gonna lie, it's probably gonna be brief. <laughs> yeah, because I don't really remember them that much, to be honest. <laughs> well, Alex, we only saw him like the first 10-15 minutes, and that was it. So yep. I don't blame you on that one. Uh, I like both these actors, uh, Clifford Chapin and Joel McDonald, you know. Uh, last thing I remember hearing Joel McDonald in was actually Empire of Corpses, so, uh... Oh, yeah. Um, Wait, who the fuck was Joel McDonald in Empire of Corpses? But I, I guess this kind of plays into what I was saying earlier in the, in the whole idea of everybody sounds like normal people in this. Right. And that's actually, in this case, more of a benefit than, like, a bad thing this dub because like Joel Mc you, you know uh Joel McDonald and, and Clifford Chapin like they like especially in Clifford Chapin's case we rarely get to see him sound like a normal person so like for this it, it's it's really nice that they can actually like just use their regular speaking voices to kind mm -hmm. of blend into the background almost in a weird sort of way and for again they're soldiers in this so it, it them being kind of faceless goons almost is kind of the point. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that's probably the most I can pretty much say about these characters, but the I would almost say it's a benefit that they didn't stand out in this case. Absolutely, actually. Yeah. Now you say that. It's, it's actually the point of the movie that they kind of blended in with everybody else. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. They, they didn't... They didn't, like, overstay their welcome, I guess is what I'll say. So. Okay. Aman? Yeah, I'm, <clears throat> I'm very much in agreement. Like, um, well, these are two good performances. Um, like, at best, at worst, just sort of limited by the fact that, like, Alex isn't in the movie for very long. And I think, like, Lack was saying, like, they're kind of designed to be sort of interchangeable dudes with not a lot of personality. You know, like, especially especially going to the whole conceit of, like, these soldiers having given stuff to, you know, dampen their personality, which is why anytime one of their comrades dies, they seem to cope with it just by, like, going home, watching football. And watching all, like, football, food. eating pizza. Yeah. Exactly. It's, there's, there's... Didn't, did, didn't we do this when Alex died? Yeah, we did, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, we did. It's like, yeah, I, guess we're, I guess we really enjoy emotionally unhealthy ways of coping with our friend's death. <laughs> like um, specifically i think they like buy dominoes which is the worst type of coke pizza pretty much <laughs> um but i thought these were good performances though i thought um like they were both they were both strong in the way the roles needed to be it's just they're kind of purposely limited roles um but they're both very good in it and i can shocking cliff gave himself the scroll the role with the least screen time so he could focus on directing i imagine <laughs> smart man 
Smart uh, man. <laughs> tend to cast himself in his own shows very often, though. Yeah. No, he doesn't, actually. Even if then, it's the smallest, smallest thing. Because, like, uh, what's another one? Allison Zoroku, he had a small role in the flower shop. Uh, he wasn't in Darling in the Franks at all, unless he was a background character. Literally, I think the biggest character he's ever been in his own show is is Yoon from Yona of the Dawn. Hmm. Oh, oh, well, you might want to count Garo Crimson Moon, too, because he was one of the many directors on it. The Garo that we fair. don't talk about. <laughs> No the one. point has the point has to be made though. So, yeah, it's very rare for Cliff to like take on a major role in his own directorial. Now he's work. gonna watch this so. and be like, "Ha ha, fuck you guys! I'm gonna start casting myself as the lead in all my fucking shows." <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Uh, I don't think he's gonna do that. I don't think he's gonna do that. And knowing him, a unless. Joke. Um, 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 unless, well, hold on. To be fair, Legend of the Galactic Heroes is a thing that exists. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> I forgot about that for a second. Fuck like, you. Wait. Wait. Stop making fun of Reinhardt's boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? I like Kirschites as a character. He's Young actually a pretty good character. Young Wen Lee is best boy in Legend of the Galactic Heroes. Don't at me. Um. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Megan, what are your thoughts? Well... I was gonna make a really snarky joke. Well put, joke. Megan. <laughs> mm. Thank you, Bravo! Bra- nod I, sagely. I, I would, yes, nod sagely. <laughs> you can't see it right now, but I'm nodding my head. Sagely. God damn it. And now I'm doing the what is love headbang. Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt don't me. Don't hurt me no, no more. more. Which is what I think Leland and Alex were actually thinking when they died horrific deaths. Uh, probably well no Leland was just like eh fuck it and then Alex had some sort of like mental breakdown yeah Alex was like having a PTSD attack yeah because that was like the reason why he he did everything was he was a reaction to a drug that was to prevent him from having PTSD gave him PTSD Um, that's at least what it was explained um, as John McDonald was Leland like honestly like it it sounded just like an, a person on the street talking to you that's just like, okay, we've all been to enough conventions in our life, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Go with me. You know how okay. when people are like, hey, I met you at a con before, but you don't remember them, but you just kind of like know them as a person? Yeah, I get what you're that's saying. What, that's what sure. Leland felt like to me, because no offense, I could not tell you which one of them was Leland. Mm. I actually got him confused with Williams. Oh. Like, That's <laughs> nice. why I texted you that. Um, okay. <laughs> and then Clifford Chapin did a, a good job as Alex having his little, like, hells in your head kind of, like, little... He sounded like the kid of the group, but without sounding like mm. an actual child, because, as we all know, uh, Clifford's little boy voice scares some people. Hurry! Um, <laughs> <laughs> I really should watch Gangsta again. Um, but that's all. That's all I have to say. Uh, good job being soldier guys, dudes. Sneebs. I had forgot these characters were designates at first. They were, as I say, fit into the roles of faceless, interchangeable killing units who exist to enforce their nation state's will. Uh... As I went back and listened to the beginning parts, uh, 
with the role of Alex Cliff playing himself in this. Uh, I think there's a bit of meta humor. I think there's always a bit of a joke about kill the director. That's always kind of funny. <laughs> uh, Good so job. Oh my god, you're right. It, voice actors are like any other actors, and there is a bit of fun in making that person telling you what to do act out a horrible, horrible death. But, uh, by the by, there was a point where you could just hear where the exact point where Alex has truly started to break. Mm. It, it's very subtle, but when you get to it, it's, uh, knowing what happens afterwards and what's going on with his brain chemistry, it's, uh, it's interesting to hear. Uh, but as for Leland, yeah, Leland was, uh, another faceless killing machine who is serving his purpose. And I can't condemn Joel McDonald or Cliff Chapin for doing these roles, but aside from that one little piece that did strike out to me, ah, that's when it, it all comes tumbling down as a house of cards collapses. They're killing machines, doing killing machine jobs. Okay. I get you. That's all I have to say. Um, while I'm sitting here thinking about what you guys are saying with these two characters, I had a realization. As forgettable as these two characters are, they they actually do serve a purpose in the film. And it's kind of to progress Clavis's mindset and to push his development towards mm -hmm. the end goal. So, like I was saying before, when I said I actually really enjoyed Alex's description or his thoughts on how hell is your mind like that's an interesting uh, not psychological uh, philosophical mindset and kind of existential to a point that mm -hmm. Cliff has to portray in that one that one little set of dialogue and I thought it was great as well as <laughs> yes yes <laughs> like, it is actually um, it's, oh it's great and then like Steve you were kind of saying where when he's kind of, when he just kind of breaks it's very very subtle like, it's not the corny, like, screaming at the high heavens, like, freaking the fuck out. It's very subtle. Eyes going, like, wide. Like, what the fuck just happened? And that that was also played wonderfully. Um, so, with Alex, he's definitely the start for where Clavis kind of shifts his mindset a little bit. Mm. Like, it's kind of like little seeds being planted into his brain. Um, and then when we get to Leland, in particular, later on with Joel McDonald, like how I was describing him before, like, Leland is your tip, was basically one of your typical soldiers. Doesn't question orders, will fight to the bitter end. And that's, it, it's the biggest part for him is when Leland dies mm -hmm. after just sitting here still shooting everybody with my missing limbs. He doesn't give a shit and he's not even feeling pain. Like over the radio before, because Clavis is separated from the unit, the unit is pinned down by the enemy and he Clavis radios in and Leland basically tells him, yeah, I'm missing an arm, but it's okay. And Clavis like, wait, aren't you in pain? Or don't you hurt him? Like, nah, I don't actually. <laughs> I really don't. It must be the painkillers or something, like that drug or whatever the hell it was. So, they put purple Kool-Aid up their noses. It's true they did. They yeah, put the can't purple feel drink my up arm. their nose. I can't feel my legs. I my leg! I can't feel my... That's the good stuff. Mmm. 
I was about to start singing I Can't Feel My Face, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Help! I've fallen and I can't get up. There we go. Tis but a scratch. As we all just spout off lines. For There's all, the Monty Python for, reference. Oh for, dear. All, for all the people who have watched the episode 9 commentary of Yamato with uh, a certain android missing his legs. You guys got any chicken? <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, with Leland's character... Considering where Clavius is in his in his mindset in that part of the story, because Lucia has disappeared along with John Paul. John Paul has started kind. He just had a discussion with John Paul. John Paul's an asshole. He is, but oh my god, he's a charismatic asshole, and I love it. But um, and John Paul's kind of just like explaining some of his methodology and his theories and. Uh, philosophical and existential mentality and Clavius is slowly but surely kind of being affected by all this so him coming upon Leland at that point too he's I think that's where the gears are really starting to turn a lot more so as forgettable as these two characters are they actually in my opinion they serve a very very big purpose in terms of Clavius's progression as a character so having said that both of these performances I really enjoyed Again, in terms of Alex and Cliff, like I said before, loved the whole philosophical bit with hell being your mind and the subtle, the subtle PTSD flashback situation he had. It was great. Leland, what did I say for Joel? Did I say anything for him? Actually, I don't think I wrote anything down for Joel. But, um, and as for Joel, like I said, typical soldier following commands, following orders. Um, so both of them, as, as like generic as generic of characters as these are, the fact that they play an important role in the lead character's progression is very I think is very important and they both perform very, very well in those in that respect in order to help progress Claudius as a character. Um we get to move on. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okie dokie. We are going to move on to more military folks. Woo! Our second and only other group. So we have Williams, who is a member of Clavis Shepard's unit. And then we have Rockwell, which is their commanding officer. Williams is voiced by, lo and behold, uh, we have Ian Sinclair here, who is been in series such as Aka, 13 Territory Inspection Department, Hioka, and Noragami. Meanwhile, Rockwell, big commanding guy... You gotta have a commanding voice with this character, right? So we have one Mr. Christopher Sabat, who has been in series such as My Hero Academia, Golden Kamui, and Kino's Journey, The Beautiful World. Lack, That's would you a like dog. to- As a dog. As a dog. True facts. Chris Sabat can lick his own butthole in that show. <laughs> I'm not Thankfully gonna say anything. he didn't. So, uh... <laughs> Thanks, Megan. You're welcome! <laughs> Appreciate that visual. I did not need that today. No, I said the dog could lick his own asshole, not Chris Sabat. Well, my brain went elsewhere because of you, so well, that's thank your own you. fucking fault. <laughs> These are the jokes, people. When he's able to reach around, he goes, I am here! <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Fuck. Oh, Remember, god. kids, watch, watch your face before your ass. <laughs> Come watch what? me, young Midoriya! Oh my god! <laughs> You're terrible, Lack. I hope you know that. No, I'm out. keep going. 
and you're, you're done. All right, all right. Lack, what's your opinion on the performances of Ian and Chris Sabat? Well, thankfully, these are played by two of a couple of my favorite voice actors. I love Ian Sinclair, and I love Christopher Sabat to death. Um, for Williams, Williams was kind of a standout character because of the fact he was the only one who seemed to be enjoying himself in this movie. Um <laughs> Uh, and Ian's Ian's great smarmy voice was perfect for the character because I would say that Ian had the most distinctive voice out of anyone mm-hmm. in this cast, and I think right. that helped because Williams was probably the most distinctive character uh, next to probably John Paul, but um, I think it worked really well because you know Ian Sinclair most of his career he's been playing smarmy assholes, so it's it, it's it's utilized well for the character of Williams in this. Um, he, he did have some great dialogue with, with some of the goofy references he would make and, uh, you know, just the fact that they kept bringing up that he's married and stuff like that. That was pretty fun too. Um, for Rockwell, uh, it, you can always hear Christopher Sabat when he's talking, no matter, no matter what. But the great thing is, is he was using his regular voice for this, like a lot of the other actors were, and... He, he was playing a character that he fit really well, the, the commanding, you know, officer. And, um, you know, he has such a commanding presence as an actor that it's such a perfect fit for him. Uh, Rockwell didn't do that much in the, in the movie, honestly. I mean, he just gave his commanding orders, and that was about it. But at the same time, for a character like that, you need someone like Chris Sabin who can really, like, just command authority. And just, mm-hmm. you, you hear his voice, and... Something great about Christopher Sabat's voice is the fact that he, there's age in his voice, and it, it it gives a sense of like wisdom to the sound of his voice. And and when you have a character like Rockwell, you know you need a char- you need a voice actor like that who really has those qualities to his voice. So, yeah. Okay, I'm on. Yeah, um, I think I'm kind of in agreement. Um... Chris Abbott was good as Rockwell. Uh, Rock, you know, Rockwell doesn't do that much, but uh, you know, as far as you know, if you want to get a big brawny military guy in your dub, Chris Abbott's a very good choice to go with. He can do that and nail it pretty much every time. Um, so I liked him, and I really liked Ian Sinclair as Williams. I think he's he's at least the most entertaining performance in this dub, probably. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that he gets a lot of the really jokey lines, like the stuff about the Spanish Inquisition and so on. Right. Um, as you know, Ian Sinclair is a very funny actor, and he's good at punching that up, but he's also a good dramatic actor, so, you know, when they get to the bit at the end where he's talking about it, it's like, yes, I like my life where I can eat half a Big Mac and then throw the rest away, and that's fine. Uh, yeah, you know, it's like, like, like what I was, it's like kind of like what I was saying before, like, even, even if it's weird references and jokey lines, because of the character of Williams, it actually works. Yeah, no, and I, th- I think I think Ian's a part of that. I think he, he has yeah. the chops to not have that, um, like, careen into, like, being funny when it's trying to be serious. Uh, and I think that's a real credit to him as just an actor, being able to, like, balance all that. All while playing a guy who, you know... I mean, he's a little less at flat affect than uh, some of the other characters, but, you know, he's still one of these guys who's just kind of a, he's a cog and he fights people and he doesn't try and think about it too hard because that might be upsetting. Uh, yeah, no, I like these two a lot. They were, they were very good. A plus. Megan? Megan? Uh, you're, God, now you're doing the thing that Gigi fucking called me. <laughs> Only once. I gotta do it once. Sorry. Ah! Go ahead. 
only Gigi, Gigi and you guys are allowed to, only you and Gigi are allowed to call me that. So, um. Megune. I swear, she's like, I got good pulls and love, and, uh, Udapri, I swear to God, if she got my fucking boy. Anyway, um, <laughs> back on track. No, so the last time I heard Christopher Stabbett play an army commander, it was really weird. Wait, when was it? I unfortunately had to watch Taboo Tattoo. Oh, <laughs> oh no! Yeah! Oh, no. They also said fuck in that show, like they say fucking shit in this movie. So they did. Yeah, I props, feel, props on that one. You don't hear, you don't hear anime say motherfucker a lot. So it was, I was so waiting for it of all things in like an episode of Tokyo Ghoul. Well, like, well, you yes, know what, you were. You, you know what? That, I was waiting for it in Re, and they never fucking did it. I was it, so it's, mad. It's interesting because this this drips of kind of nineties anime. Honestly, kind of yeah. Yeah. It feels like this feels like a movie that would be made like, like it, this would be like some like R-rated like hard action drama with like Liam Neeson in the U.S. or some shit. Well, I'm, I'm trying honestly, to think, what, yeah. What was the company that like used to distribute all those really mature anime and would love to promote them as like super mature, like Angel Pop? Manga Entertainment. Yeah, I guess it was Manga Entertainment. Was it Central yeah. Park? Was it Central Park Media? Yeah, mm. I guess Central Park kind of did that too. So. Her, uh. But, uh, so, hearing Chris Sabat do the army thing and sound like a normal fucking human was very well appreciated. <laughs> um, even though that was dubbed after they dubbed this movie. Uh, but I will agree with everybody that he doesn't get a lot of screen time, so it's actually, it, it, it's just like, oh, hey, Chris Sabat's in this fucking movie. Um, but he does a really good job. Ian as Williams, though, um, brought a lot of what kept me in the movie there. Mm-hmm. Uh, him and the character I believe we're talking about next are kind of, like, the two reasons I really kind of got, like, when they were on screen were, like, some of the times I was like, okay, I can get into this now. Um, and his final, final speech in, I don't know what country they were in, I just know it's against, like, Victoria. Like, near Lake Victoria, yeah. Tanzania, yeah. I think. Was it Tanzania? I think Lake I Victoria's think. in Tanzania. Oh, cool. Ta- Oh, they can get that fucking right, but they can't fucking animate Tampa correctly. <laughs> oh god, she has so much problem with that. God, fuck, that's not Tampa! That's we'll not get to that when we Tampa! Get to that's Jean-Paul. South Tampa! That's nope, completely nope, different I guess we're doing this now. <laughs> we're doing it now. Oh, we're doing it now. Okay. Look what we've done. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. This is gonna bother me if I'm thinking about it. Okay. Welcome so to Duck Talk After Hours. <laughs> Have fun at the end of the I work like, okay, like, I literally work. No, you know what? I'm saving this when we talk about Clovis, because Clovis is the reason, is the person in the seeds. So no, so when they're having, um, the battle of ideologies as John Paul just sits there and is like, wow, I got a lot of blood in my hands. Um, haha, visual metaphor. Um, <laughs> uh, where Ian, where Williams is like, I don't want my, my wife and daughter to know this world mm-hmm. is a shithole. Fuck this noise. We're gonna kill him. No one's ever gonna find out about this. I'm gonna go home, eat a fucking Big Mac, throw half of out, half of it out. Fuck yeah, white privilege. That and, pretty much sums it up. And it's, it's funny because <laughs> I'm not gonna say Andrew's bad Yona of the Dawn joke about him, but I do want to bring up the fact that apparently he had a dream where he was putting on Prison School the Musical last night. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, just ask him about it. Um. I'm gonna text him that right now. Wait, the fuck? But, um, 
I really thought that Ian carried a lot of smarmy char- char- uh, smarmy charisma into a character who is technically supposed to be emotionless or have repressed emotions. But I, it's like, is the drug really working on everybody? Was like, I think like a subplot that I thought was going on, but wasn't. Um, but I think when he starts to unravel towards his death, Mm. Is where I was like, yeah, this is exactly why they had Ian Sinclair be this character. Because you need to have somebody who has kind of that smarmy jackass voice. But Mm. when he needs to, like, Ian Sinclair's also really good at, like, turning on when somebody's going batshit insane. Right. And while he wasn't going, like, traditional batshit insane, like, like murder boner from from Golden Kamui. (laughs) Or, like, escaping a whale stomach. Like in Golden Kamui. Oh, murder boner. That's the best way to describe that character right there. Thank you, Anime FMK. Um, that's what they called him. They just called him murder boner. Thank you, Austin Tindall, for your services. Yes. <laughs> Shout out to Red Austin Select for kind of coining murder boner. So. What? <laughs> but um, having Ian be able to kind of still have that that restraint that needs to be there because obviously you know that these guys are not supposed to be feeling emotion but at the same time being able to kind of like let loose and be like no fuck you fuck you Clavis fucking kill him Clavis you idiot um was really great Sneeps my first thoughts on the character of Rockwell was another soldier A, like Alex and Leland. Mm-hmm. But as we got on there, and there was that... Um, we got to hear him in command. We can see why this guy would be in command. He does have... He sounds like Chris Sabat, and Chris Sabat does sound like the sort of guy who probably would be commanding a unit. Um, but Williams, uh, particularly near the end, that was Ian Sinclair doing, doing the Ian Sinclair jokey bit, but making you as the listener feel extremely guilty for liking him. Because he is just, as we have mentioned previously, he lays on to very much the callow, selfish reasons of, of, of yielding towards the power structure that enables all this atrocity, but he's so darn funny and engaging, we almost want to agree with him before we, as the audience, are forced to confront the same sorts of things in our own lives. And uh, I thought that that was a masterful little bit of acting there, where we... He's popping them quips, and it's very funny, and then we're forced to reckon with, yeah, this man is willing to jump on board with a regime that would happily enable genocides, providing they're not affecting the developed world soil. Hooray for the global north versus the global south. And, yeah, I have nothing really so much to add other than I liked both of these, though Williams, as Sinclair, did stand out more than Rockwell mm-hmm. because he does get some of those great one-liners at the end about wanting to throw away the Big Mac, or, of course, it's a big lie, but it's our lie. But can't deny it. 
was really effective in both cases. So I'm not. So I have a confession to make. So earlier today, before we watched the movie, um, I don't remember if I mentioned it on recording here, but there's a, a special feature on the DVD Blu-ray combo pack where four of the cast members uh, they kind of answer like some questions about the film itself. I think you did towards the beginning. Maybe, but um, one pair was. Cliff Chapin and then the um, individual we're going to discuss next. So, <laughs> Cliff talked about the half-eaten Big Mac being thrown away, and I completely forgot that was a thing in the film. So here I am, once he said it, I'm like, wait, what kind of metaphor is this shit? <laughs> I don't understand. Why'd he just do that? And then I watched the film, I'm like, oh, I forgot that William said that. Uh, anyway, um, it's so for of consumerism, gosh! I was I had a dumb moment. I'm like, wait, what does a Big Mac have to do with anything, Cliff? Why are you saying that? And then like, I I when I rewatched the film and I saw that, I'm like, okay, makes sense. That did not come out of left field. Mm. <laughs> it came. He pulled it from that. Um. Anyway, so Chris Abbott as Rockwell is very interesting because, like I said, Rockwell has is the commanding officer for this unit. So. He has to have a commanding pre- presence in the film, but not so much so so to overshadow the other characters, spe- specifically Clavis, because Clavis, he's he is a captain. He's a commanding officer for their unit. However, he's also probably one of the more unassuming characters in the sh- in the film. So, having a voice and portraying Rockwell. In a way that doesn't overshadow Clavis's pro- progression as a character is very important, and Sabat did very well with this. Williams is also very interesting because, out of all the characters in this film, if there was one character that kind of breaks up the dark monotony of this film, it's Williams. Not just because of his quips and his personality, but. Ian Sinclair has a knack for being the kind of, having the kind of performance that just breaks up that monotony in all things. Um, for example, if we're if we're looking at, uh, what's a good example here? If we're looking at Yon of the Dawn, he, Gija is the butt of the joke half the fucking time. <laughs> so mm. that kind of breaks up some of the monotony that Ian has to portray, because Ian's very, Ian as Gija is a fun fun time in and of itself so and then there are other examples like what's another good example of ian, ian breaking, up, breaking up the monotony yeah um not aka not aka god no. not aka no uh noragami sometimes as daikoku yeah with, i was uh, i was thinking that in my head i was thinking that's in my head a little bit noragami um, not carnival because he's like he Smarmy, he's kind of the adult in that show. Um, he, he, but you kind of see where I'm going with me? it. Like, Ian's from she. I mean, ah, his outfits are atrocious to an extent. I mean, to an extent, if you look maybe. At him, you start but, um, until you realize you... what he's doing. <laughs> True facts, but you kind of see where I'm getting at. Like, he, a lot of the characters that Ian tends to portray are kind of this breath of fresh air. They break up the mundane monotony of the situation going on. And considering 
with genocidal organ in particular, considering the very complex philosophical and existential themes in this film, it actually is really nice to have. I know because, like Megan, you were saying, you got a little bit more vested in the film when you got when you inter- encountered Williams on and off screen. Yeah, like for some and reason, like it was when he was on screen, like is when I was most invested. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, like he, it, despite it being complex, having this complexity and being dark like this, Williams as a character is meant to kind of break the mold a little bit, though his personality is also that similar in terms, if we're comparing him to anyone, to be Leland, where he is like the typical soldier. He'll follow orders through and through, do what he has to do in order to keep his family and his way of life consistent and safe. Like, it's a constant kind of thing. So, him portray- Ian portraying that is very, very interesting. Not only just breaking up the monotony, but I think the strongest point for Williams is the climax of the film, where he's facing off against Clavis and giving the giving that speech about, like, I don't want my family to know about this. I just want to have my Starbucks and my Big Mac and have a good fucking day. Like, it was very, very powerful. And you can tell... By that point, because it's a good point for Clavis too as a character, because he's bro- he's finally broken f- away from that that mind that political mindset of doing what he has to for the sake of his country and for his people, and he's like, "This has gone all to shit. What is going on here?" Like he's finally thinking for himself. He's going all the shit, and then Clavis is finally thinking for himself, in a sense. Um, but that's more on Clavis later. But considering how Williams kind of breaks up the monotony in terms of personality uh, and some of the philosophical themes of the film, I think Ian did a fantastic job on that. Are we ready to move on? Sure. Sir, yes, sir. To our one... One, haha, thank you. Uh, to our one and only female character of the film that we're going to discuss, um, we have Lucia. She is the former lover of our antagonist, John Paul, who we're going to discuss in a little bit. Uh, she, she's, her connection is that supposedly from like the beginning, she met up with John Paul very briefly and Clavis and Williams are sent to the Czech Republic in order to spy on her in the hopes of running into John Paul and arresting him again. Because uh, she acts as a private tutor uh, for the Czech language and all this stuff. So Clavis like, masquerades as someone transferred over on business, wants to take these lessons, uh, and he starts getting closer to Lucia. Uh, but Lucia also is, seems to be a bit more than what she actually first appears to be. And voicing Lucia, we have Miss Jeannie Torado, who has been in series such as Code Geass, Akito the Exiled, Tokyo Ghouri, and Grimgar, Ashes, and Illusions. Lack, would you like to go first? What are your thoughts on Jeannie Torado's Lucia? Um, well, uh, first things first, I thought she was very good in the role. Um, I thought she brought an interesting vulnerability to the character, which uh, really came across in her performance. Uh, I don't really know Jeannie Torado that well. I don't know how much I've heard of her. Um, but um, regarding this, I think she did an excellent job. Uh, I don't really know Russian dialects that well, so I don't know how accurate to the Russian dialect she actually was. 
but I bought it, so <laughs> I guess that's. I think I think her accent was closer to German. German. I think Czech is more of a German, uh, Germanic language than a Russian one. Yeah, they they mentioned oh, that. Yeah. Okay, it's I'm sorry, German. I missed I messed up. No, that's cool. Sorry. Um, but yeah. Um, either way, yes. Uh, I I do think it was. Uh, she did a great job. Uh, Lucia is a very complex character. She's probably the most complex character in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, due to the fact that she has ties to both the protagonist and the antagonist of the story. Yeah. Uh, um, so I think with, uh, Jeannie Tirado, she had a lot to juggle in this, and I think she handled it very, very well. Um, you never really, truly know what side Lucia is really on until the very end, at least. And with, with, with that, um... Again, it's helped by uh, Torado's performance and the fact that she is able to sort of, like, play this mysterious character in a way that you you feel comfortable around her, but you also feel as though you're not getting the full picture. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that kind of stood out for me. I, I thought the scenes she had with uh, the voice actor for, for, for Clavis were um, very effective, like... In a way, they had very good chemistry, um, uh, and I think that helped a lot of the scenes because, as we mentioned before, this is a very dialogue-heavy show, or right? A very dialogue-heavy movie. I mean, and it, um, and yeah, I think that was something that that really needed to be done well, and I think they nailed that. So, yeah, those are my thoughts. Amon. Yeah, I I enjoyed I enjoyed Jeannie a lot in this role. Um... Like I, I agree. I thought the uh, the her work with the accent was well done. I found it like I don't you know I don't I don't know what a chick accent sounds like for the most part. But at least like it sounded plausible. It didn't sound goofy. So kudos to that. Uh, and I think she did a good job in this role. Like our our last three leads all have to participate in you know having deep philosophical discussions about linguistics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, obviously that can be hard to pull off, and I, I thought she did a good job of making a lot of that stuff like, kind of fun to sit through in its own way, like, it never it never aired into, I feel like I'm listening to some guy in my undergraduate class give a lecture on something I don't care about. Uh, which yeah. I feel like is kind of the bad version of doing that. Uh, and, you know, instead when she's talking about, you know, Here's how Creole languages are invented. It's like, okay, this is this is this is actually well done, uh, and I thought she was just good at doing the emotional heft of the character, um, particularly given her arc where she, I think, kind of starts out still being empathetic to John Paul and does not really stick with that through the end of the movie for a lot of mm-hmm. reasons. Um, right. You know. <laughs> Oops. Um, Oops. Oops. A daisy. Oops. A daisy. So, my, my boyfriend can't be a genocidal maniac, can he? What? Uh, coming, 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 coming this fall, coming, yeah, coming this fall from a light novel publisher near you. Um, You're not wrong. Uh, no, sadly. Wrong. No. I mean, we already have that Death March show, it's just a matter of time at this point. Um, oh, anyways. God. Anywho. Um, no, I, I liked her a lot. I thought she, I thought she had, I mean, she definitely had one of the more challenging roles in this. I thought she handled it very well in terms of being able to get across, like, you know, the, you know, the characters and, you know, emotional ideas and doing it with this accent and so on. I thought she did a, a really good job. I was very impressed by it. Okay. Megan. Yeah, no, um, 
this, this actually came up um, once before that uh, sometimes people don't know how realistic the accents that Jeannie uh, does does are. Um, I know that Steph particularly mentioned uh, Tokyo Ghoul Re and Akito the Exiled because those are also characters. There is a those reason. Those are also two characters that Jeannie has to play with a pretty heavy accent on. And in those shows, uh, due to the nature of them, they are a lot more played up and stuff. Um, I actually, actually, we had somebody comment on that who is a native German, or at least knows native German speakers. Uh, hey, Mario, how are you doing? Um, and he's like, yeah, no, like, Jeannie is pretty much 80% on shows like Re and uh, stuff that when she does the accent. Here, I like the fact that she has the accent... And it's there because it does need to differentiate her from the Americans. Yes. Uh, and she plays Lucia so beautifully and so emotionally invested and vulnerable, which is really weird for this movie because it seems like every other character is so emotionally detached to what they're doing. Um... Even if she is, it, it, it is implied that she's a bit of a homewrecker. Yeah! I don't think I, it's I mean, Okay, to be it's fair, the movie opens up with her riding, riding John Paul like a horse. John Paul. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, it's oh, this, this kind of movie. movie. Oh, look, okay. tits! It's mature. Yeah, that was that was about the point where I reached behind me and pulled down the blinds in my living room because I live on the first floor of my apartment building. <laughs> it was at that point I was like, "It's like, oh, it's one of those movies." It was at that point I was very happy that this is one of the day, my days, the days that my father goes to the hospital and was probably too tired to come check on me. Because it's like, oh, that's a. I guess you're in America. You might as well try to ride the cowboy. Um. That that is one whole anime tibby. <laughs> One whole tibby. God damn it. Remember when we were talking about this being a hard R movie? Yeah, there's a reason for that. R. <laughs> Whoops. I'm sorry, I'm just dying at the word tibby. <laughs> and we lost Megan. I'm trying, Mom! <laughs> just boobs! Hits, jugs! Sorry. But no, um, I love when Jeannie Tirado, uh gets to play older and more mature characters. Because uh, it's a rarity that she does do them. Like, I actually think Lucia is the first adult character I've ever heard her play. Because Kane, uh, Kane, Kane is like eight, maybe. Like, Kane looks like a teenager. Layla was like, what, 16, 17 from Akito? Uh, I think so, yeah. I, I mean, okay, there's her character in Orange, but a majority of that is her in high school, not as the adult. But True. Um, please cast Jeannie Tirado as more adults. Uh, but that being said, I, I absolutely loved it. It's probably my favorite performance in the film, just because it's what really kept me invested. Um, a lot of her scenes were, like, they're just talking about Kafka. And yeah. And part of my brain just immediately looked over to my Tokyo Ghoul set and was like, not today. Um, <laughs> not today, old friend. Not today. Um, nice. But yeah, no. Uh, I, I think I'm good. Steve's? Mm. 
I found I wasn't certain what to think of her accent at first. Is that that was the immediate impression? She she seemed a reserved person to say the least, uh, mm-hmm. rather reminiscent of some of my Eastern European friends. But uh, while I couldn't initially place the accent, I wasn't certain whether it was a faux French or faux German. Uh, as she started to articulate some of what made the uh, some of the info dump and exposition, she characterized to, to it. As she's talking with Clavis, she's flirting while she's talking about Noam Chomsky's theories of biological language. And flirting while talking about Noam Chomsky is not an easy thing to do, to put it lightly. And... Um, uh, Jeannie gives that voice, uh, gives this character a reserved playfulness that I find mostly among academics of, uh, who are in a certain field and are particularly engaging in, a, uh, in their area of study that's a professional interest, but are talking to it on a more personal level. She brought that uh, character out quite well, that certain quality of interaction that I found really interesting. I uh, found myself immediately um, almost questioning this character as she seems too likable to be good. She's got to have some horrible dark secret coming along and was pleasantly surprised when it turns out, no, she is someone who has some political convictions that may be unconventional, but fundamentally is strives to be a as decent of a person as you can be while mingling amongst someone like Jean Paul or his politically radical friends. And uh, yeah, um, I found that the while she does take on the role, unfortunately, of the woman in a Nolan movie, and that she is the sole female character, and as such has to do has to sort of have this emotional vulnerability that characters in this type of action movie often tend to be as an outlet for the male protagonist to comfortably express his feelings. But she she is her own person uh, with her own motives and desires, and as has been said, has an arc just like Clavis does, and uh, brings to that character that a very rich complexity that I was very grateful to have that a film like this can ver- can easily turn into something like Harmony, where it is talking heads talking about being talking heads, and any emotion they express is so ham-fisted or mm-hmm. on the nose that it doesn't have that kind of ability to connect. And I found myself really invested in her story arc by the end of it. Okay. Possibly even more so than Clavis. But that's just my opinion. I mean, I can kind of agree with that, actually, because if... Because I know I said Williams basically kind of breaks up the monotony for the film. Lucia is also a breath of fresh air in this dark, complex story. And Jeannie, I think, portrays that fantastically. Uh... First of all, Jeannie, the master of accents, is back at it again. 
Uh, <laughs> it's funny since we recently talked about Tokyo Ghoul Re too, um, and the fact that she was going German accent on that one too. It's kind of hilarious and fun. A lot of fun. Lucia is very is a very interesting character, not just because she is this breath of fresh air, but the because of the role that she plays in the progression of Clavis's character. Because if anything, she's there in a sense to what's the best way to put it? I feel like she's there to kind of broaden Clavis's Clavis's worldview a little bit Mm -hmm. and instead of being close-minded and just sticking to orders and following the rules and all that stuff she kind of hit her along with john paul when we talk to him talk about him in a minute those two characters in particular are very heavy influences on clavis's mindset and his his development as a character in the film and for Jeannie to portray that because Lucia, she's not only a very intelligent woman, she's also very strong in her own right, and she has such 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 a brave heart. Because by the end of the film, she has decided she wants to have peace in the world. And if that means turning in John Paul so the world knows exactly what's going on, she's willing to do it. Like, despite the relationship she had before with him. And you can also kind of tell a little bit here and there that Lucia and Clavis in particular, uh, they start developing some sort of feelings for each other. Um, they're never acted upon, and I'm very sad that they were never acted upon because that would have been adorable as all hell. But um, you can tell that there was something there. because, And you can tell that Lucia very heavily influenced Clavis because you could because when she disappears he is so desperate to find her again like he wants to find her to save her and just make sure she's okay and when the two of them are reunited it's a by that point Clavis has gone through this mental progression and it's very very it's a, kind of a sad moment because it's one of the few times where you actually see Clavis smile, a real smile, not actually fake one. You know what I and mean? And then, boom, headshot! <laughs> yeah. Unfortun- unfortunately, Lucia dies in the end, so that sucked. But but you guys kind of see where I'm going with this, right? Lucia, because she, she she's a very influential character in Clavis' mindset and his development, so... Jeannie, I think, portrays that very, very wonderfully, not only as a breath of fresh air, but to really help be one of those catalysts to develop Clavis' character, in a sense. If that makes sense to anyone. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do yes. you think we're good yeah. to move on? We got yeah. two left! Who's ready to talk about oh, our motherfucking yeah. antagonist of the film? <laughs> uh, this motherfucker! my cowboy! You, the antagonist? You mean the Geopolitical order? <laughs> Let's talk about John Paul. John Paul is our main antagonist of the film. John uh, Paul. He, 
He studied linguistics uh, in college, and uh, he used to work for the Department of Defense in America. However, he decided to up and bail because he's he, he basically learned that using language and grammar, he's able to convince people to start genocides. <laughs> That's a, basically what this film comes down to, is a man's words starting genocide. Um, is that it's, how all wars start? Eh, charisma is a, is a thing that exists. Um, but who in the world is going to be playing this charismatic, charismatic motherfucker Oh boy, we have one Mr. Rico Fajardo coming in here, uh, who's been in series such as Assassination Classroom, various characters of the Garo franchise, but particularly Leon Luis from Garo the Animation, as well as in Star Blazers, Battleship Yamato 2199. Lack, can you start us off? What are your thoughts on Rico Fajardo as our antagonist? Yeah, so John Paul George Ringo. Um... <laughs> So, uh, yes, uh, something that stood out for me for uh, Rico Fajardo's performance is some of the best villains in film and in television, in my opinion, are the ones who don't act like traditional villains. Yes. And I think John Paul is another one of those. I mean, I just got done marathoning Breaking Bad, so, you know, mm. Walter White, that kind of thing. Um, and it, it's... Rico Fajardo has a very, like, gentle voice, not a very threatening voice. Right. And for a villain like John Paul, I think that fits extremely well. Mm -hmm. And Rico Fajardo also had a lot of charisma with the character as well. He, I, I think, um, and for a villain like this, you really need that charisma because you need to, you, you need to, like, be able to sell the idea that this guy is totally believing in what he believes and he's not, like, wavering from it at all. And uh, we find out that, you know, John Paul, while he's not a great guy, he wasn't going to do what they thought he was going to do. So he didn't turn out to be as bad as they thought. But at the same time, it's like, uh, it just he worked really well as the villain in the way that even without, like, an army behind... Well, I mean, he had the mercenaries. But... Even without, like, needing, even without, like, needing subordinates, he was still able to carry a room. He was still right. able to show how powerful he was. Um, I don't know how much else I really have to say. Uh, because, he, I mean, he only really shows up in the, like, for a little bit in each part that he's in. So... Right. But, I mean, he was very memorable for the small bits that he was in. And that seems to be a theme in in, uh, in uh, Ito's works, where the villains only really show up in small bits. Because it was kind of the same thing with the one in Empire of Corpses. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that that's pretty much what I have to say. So, uh, Amon, what do you think of Rico as John Paul? I'm in agreement. I thought he was very good in this role. Um, I thought he had to walk this line where you're clearly supposed to find John Paul charismatic and interesting, but I don't think the movie necessarily wants you to like 
agree with him per se like it's not that mm-hmm. clear-cut a movie and i thought he did a good job of selling that where he's like attractive but there's still that underlying menace to him like you never forget what exactly he's talking about right uh, and I, I agree with lack i think i think particularly because rico does not have a like he does not have a voice that you usually would peg as like oh that's a villainous character like it doesn't fit that stereotype i think that helps a lot particularly given that like this is a very morally complicated movie um so having your lead villain sound like somebody who you might you know you come to he comes to you at the right point in your life you might like find what he's saying interesting and compelling and you might throw in with him uh even though what he's doing has very very serious consequences for other people um yeah and else again like I, I you know he's one of these characters who has to like have a lot of heavy dialogue and i also think he does that very very commendably like he's he's, he's also good at taking all this all this you know fancy pants philosophical stuff that i usually barely only barely understand at the best of times and presented in a way where it is not boring and i don't feel like i'm being lectured by somebody it feels like actual dialogue um so props yeah. to him for that megan yeah this is really weird that rico is speaking in a natural voice and he's just this very quiet character and very introspective because Rico Fajardo also plays a lot of spaz. Yeah. It's true. And he's also a little bit of one in real life. I've watched... <laughs> I've watched the Golden Armor Shot video. Where oh he God. almost sets his own esophagus on fire. Oh no! Rico. Did he really? The best part of that video is great because there's just Rico being like unable to like get one of the long like the long nosy lighters to work and justin briner's just in the back with the most concerned look on his face (laughs) so this was very very strange that rico fajardo of all people is this very quiet yet punchable villain (laughs) (laughs) he's very punchable i am very excited to watch him get drunk and free um (laughs) oh boy his character gets drunk and has to be taken home by Vic Mignogna, so it's very, oh, no. it's going to be a very fun time. Sweet. Um, so, but no, I think to me the scene that really actually stands out for Jean Paul is not the the end scene between him, Lucia, uh, Lucia, and uh, Clavis in the world's weirdest setup to a three way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you equated to that. Someone's got to lighten the mood. Um, but it's when he's. I still can't believe this is a thing in this movie. Is that to uh, transport their 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 war prisoners back? Is they put them in like sci-fi like escape pods? Yes, meat coffins with like a th- like they don't even handcuff them. They zip tie them. They use the most low budget motherfucking shit, and then they put them in like sarcophagi, sci-fi sarcophagi. And he's like, you know, how about you uh, help your friends out? And I'm just doing things, and wouldn't you want to do it? And Clubby's just sitting there like, no! <laughs> but, and then, uh, when he dies at the very end, because essentially, I guess, he either, like, I don't know if this guy's got, like, some magical, like, trigger word mm-hmm. to make people do things, or if he just took... Clavis's gun and shot himself? No, I think from my understanding of it, 
Because by that point, Clavis, his whole mindset has changed on, like, what's going on in the world. And Mm -hmm. John Paul's mindset at that point is like, I can't do this anymore. Because they know who I am. They know what I'm capable of. There has to be someone else who's able to, like, really get in there and do that. Hey, Clavis, how about you? How yeah. about you? And Cl- I think Clavis, I'm pretty sure Clavis is the one who shoots him. Because Cl- yeah, no. Clavis just goes with it. So, yeah, no. Um, but, yeah, no, Rico was great. And I, I liked getting to hear him use his, like, natural voice. But just, mm-hmm. at, like, this very, like, I don't know if there's, like, a Western, like, movie equivalent to this. Because this is kind of, like, the most... I think this is the Project Edo movie that you could easily show people who aren't into anime. Mm. Yeah. Um... But I don't really know what to say, so Sneebs, take it away. The character of John Paul, uh, first off, the jokes about existentialism earlier really bring a smile to my face. Uh, both Pope John Paul II and Jean Paul Sartre were, I thought, either they're doing the oh, ironic yeah. thing. Jean- oh, yeah, that's right, Jean Paul. Or oh, they're doing the existentialist thing. Jean Paul Sartre is very, very interesting as someone who studied theater. He's also someone who has some interesting views on the nature of death, which uh, makes a perfect reference here. Um, With this character, both with the character design and the way he was voiced, I was reminded of Alex Organ's take on Shogo Makashima. Uh Aha, okay. Someone soft-spoken, incredibly intelligent, and who is incredibly dangerous to be in a room with simply because he can say the right thing. Quite literally in the case of Jean-Paul here. And uh, given that type of role in the story, you would want someone who doesn't sound like a mustache-twirling villain. Someone who Mm -hmm. is subtle and soft and erudite and is so very dangerous because they, the way in which they strike is going to be infinitely more subtle than a knife between the ribs. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the role that we get here with Ricardo, uh, we get that sort of... I, I don't want to say Lecter-esque psychopath, because there is that, that archetype is done... Hannibal Lecter is so bombastic and overblown... Uh, you can see, you can taste the scenery as it's being chewed up here. I, um, I feel like, if anything, the best way to describe John Paul is he's more of a like subtle intellectual villain mm-hmm. with that oozes charisma. Yeah, he he does have that uh, charisma and that intelligence and a wherewithal that uh, comes with the the sort of quiet confidence of someone who knows exactly how politically valuable he is, Mm -hmm. and so can get away with a lot because no one would dare shoot him because of the value he can bring towards any nation-state who happens to have that. The man can literally make genocide happen with a speech or two. He understands the deep structures of language in the brain and has an intimate understanding of this fictional universe's evolutionary role of genocide. Mm -hmm. And the very title of the movie, The Genocidal Organ, 
is yes. something that he is mastery over. And this is someone who, uh, as uh, Negan had mentioned, about being on that, uh, in the dropship that's taking off the the uh, war criminals, when you have Clavis confronting him, it is such a tense scene where Clavis is away from his fellow soldiers. He's alone in the room with this guy, and Clavis has a gun, Jean-Paul can speak, and it is cl very clear that Jean-Paul knows so much about what is going on here. He understands the nature of the mission. He understands the nature of the people who are executing the mission. He understands that the soldier he is speaking to right now, A, is canny enough to figure out what's going on, and B, has the exact same type of neurochemical mind whammy going on that operates on the same principles that Jean-Paul has used to instill war crimes in and destabilize nation-states the world over. It's a scene that has to be handled very delicately. Yes. Uh, this is... Uh, I know I would... If I were doing this, it would be so easy to just chew scenes. Uh, I love playing villains, and this is the sort of villain that would be very fun to play, but very hard to pull off. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, this is the sort of calculated sociopathy that uh, Rico really delivers on. And Clavis is the person, or sorry, Jean-Paul is the person who is driving this movie in so many ways. And mm -hmm. to make this... To make this not... Uh, to make this not be boring, to make this pointed and articulate and nuanced, while without giving this character a whole lot of emotional range, uh, he is always speaking in a low, even, conversational tone that does hide a wicked intelligence. It's something that's take that takes a real directorial care and you can see cliff chapin's uh yeah there must have been a, do a dozen takes here to make this uh ring with the type of unctuous intelligence that yeah unctuous intelligence that is this character in a nutshell scary as hell and uh any guy who can go on and uh deliver lines like uh the very organs of genocide in our brains are part of that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, good job, Rico Ferrato. You you managed to land this, and I would argue Genie uh, Tirado also. It's a toss between this or Genie Tirado as best performance in the film. So okay, interesting. That, in my not so humble opinion. I like how you brought you brought up actually a couple of fun, interesting things for me. Um, one of which being that if like different nations could use John Paul's his intelligence and his research, because a lot of what it comes down to with this whole genocidal organ situation is the research he's done into linguistics and the grammar and the use of language. It's interesting you brought that up because part of the plot is. The United States is very back and forth as to what the exact order with John Paul is going to be. 
First, it's we gotta we gotta kill him. First, next, we gotta capture him. Then we gotta kill him again. Then we gotta capture him again. It's because that's how dangerous. What do you of fucking a, want, people? Because he's that dangerous. Like if he's let's say like he's captured, what is the United States gonna do with him? Are they going to actually like prosecute him for all these genocides, or are they actually going to use him to if create you paid these genocides to the twentieth century? You might know the answer to that question. It's very interesting. And then, um, the, con- the connection I didn't even think of before, and you brought it up, it, Jean-Paul Sartre, um, who is a philosopher from, I believe, like, what, World War One, World War Two era? World War II. And um, his major um, philosophical theory is about existentialism. And... Once that, once you started talking about Jean-Paul Sartre, my brain was my the gears were turning in my brain, because then because existentialism is essentially, or part of one of the theories of existentialism anyway, is your own kind of hell being trapped forever in your own kind of hell, and other people with other people, correct? Thank you for reminding me, and um, it's very interesting bringing that in because that could be that's essentially a th- one of the themes of the film like you're trapped with this genocide you're trapped with all of these world events and goings on and then my brain le- led back to alex's opening little monologue or dialogue about how hell is in your own mind and then clavis is just it's a progression with clavis's character where hell is in his mind the gears are turning and hell hell is being all these other people killing each other it's God damn! <laughs> my like the gears of my brain are turning. There's so much more. Like once you said Jean-Paul Sartre, I'm like, oh shit, you right. There's so much existentialism that I didn't even think of before, and it's very interesting. Anyway, sidetrack. Rico Fajardo is Jean-Paul. Holy mother of God. Um, it's very interesting, and I have to kind of agree with Megan with some points where. Because when I first watched the film, I actually, because I completely forgot what the cast list was, minus Clavis being Clavis, who we'll get to. And I forgot that Rico was this this character. And when I first heard it, I was like, wait, I don't under, I don't quite get this choice. It doesn't quite fit. Rewatching the film today, for me, I fully understand. Because... John Paul is an intellectual. He's not the mustache twirling villain like Sneeves mentioning. He's very rooted in his intelligence and his charisma is just there's such charisma in this character that he's able to manipulate people into doing what he wants based on the research he'd done into lo- lo- linguistics and logistics and stuff like that. And I I completely, on the second watch watch through, I completely understand why Rico is in this role. Because Rico made John Paula to a very soft-spoken, intellectual man and has so much charisma about him that I'm just sitting here and I'm watching Rico voice this character. I can't look away. My, like, you have captured my attention every time you were on screen. And 
my favorite interactions in any part of the movie are the ones that involve John Paul and Clavis. Like, those interactions and the Again, the amount of times that this interaction has been brought up, the the scene where they're on the the airship, there are these pods. Clavis is talking to John Paul about all this different stuff, and then even then, before that, the first time Clavis actually meets John Paul face to face is also a very interesting and intriguing scene as well, because that's where you kind of start seeing those seeds of linguistics kind of be thrown in there and this charisma starts coming through so it's jean paul is a very complex amalgamation of a character and rico i think just plays that fantastically and i think it's also one of my favorite performances of the film honestly um outside of our next character our final character if we're ready to go into that yes yes all right mission confirmed commence so our final character of the evening, our main character of this film, we have Captain Clavis Shepard, uh, who is in charge of this special operations unit for the United States, uh, and him and his unit are tasked to bring down our antagonist John Paul and figure out and stop all these rampant genocides from happening. But over the course of the film, John Paul starts to question the decisions that not only he is making but his country as well so the individual voicing this character we have josh Greeley, who has been in series such as the ancient magus bride drifters and psychopaths lack would you like to get us started on your thoughts on josh Greeley? uh yes josh Greeley as clavis uh josh Greeley is a top-notch actor he's often really good at playing these really dramatic roles uh especially when he's in the forefront he, he actually plays the leaning man quite a bit, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, um... Yeah, I gotta be honest, Clavis didn't stand out as much as some of the other characters for me, but I think, again, that's kind of the point, is the fact that he is kind of a blank slate, and he's got a bunch of things that are going on around him. And But for the for picking Josh Grayley as the voice, I think it was an excellent choice. He uh, Josh Grayley has a very strong voice, he has a very, uh... Is, he has a unique voice, which I think is good for a character like this. Um, and the more emotional scenes is really where he got to shine as an actor, uh, especially near the end where all the, the seams are starting to come undone and he's starting to figure out exactly what John Paul's plan is and where that all comes into play. And his, Like I said before when we were talking about Lucia, like the, the scenes between him and Lucia were, were very good because uh, Josh and, and Jeannie had really good uh, chemistry, like, for, for their particular scenes, and they were both... And Josh Greeley is a very intellectual guy, so him just reading off all this, you know, intellectual stuff, this historical stuff and, and the like, he, he was very good at that. He felt like... It felt like he was right in his element, which I think was uh, a really strong part of his performance. Um, But, yeah, I can't really think of anything else much to say. Um... For most of the good first chunk of the film, he's not even really in it. That's what's interesting. Um, but, yeah, no. Uh, with him and everyone else around him, uh, he did shine as a main character. And, yeah, uh, uh, just to sum it all up, Josh Grayley was a great choice. So, yeah. 
All right, Amon. Yeah, I I enjoyed I enjoyed Josh a lot in this role. Um, I think like Lack was saying, um, Clavis he's a very he's he's often a very intellectual character as a lot of characters in this movie are, uh, and Josh is very good at that. He knows how to sound natural talking about all this you know highfalutin philosophy stuff, and yeah, make it compelling in its own way, which which is interesting. Um, and I, I thought he. He was able to bring that sense where Clavis, like a lot of the soldiers, is kind of muted, but not to the point where you can't figure out what's going on in his head. Like he's even if he doesn't have as much personality as like Williams, for example, um, mm-hmm. he's still a character you can follow, and you can you know you can understand his motivations and where he's going and coming to and so on. Um, and I thought I thought they did a interesting. The movie takes the interesting tactic where I don't know if it necessarily agrees with what Shepard does in the end, but it does lay out, like, why he's doing this and why this might not be the worst idea. And I thought Josh did a good job of selling that aspect of it, of making this seem, like, logical in a technical sense, if not necessarily right. Um, Which I think is kind of hard to pull off. Especially in like such a weighty movie as this, where like you you often look for the humor in it because it's so dour the rest of the time. Um, yeah, I enjoyed him a lot. I thought he I thought he he was very well cast as this character, which I think give, like given that he is like the lead, uh, you know I think I think miscasting this would have spoiled the whole movie in general. So I'm I'm very happy with him here. Megan, yeah, Josh really is once again terrifying. Um. <laughs> Like, I God, I don't think I've heard him in like literally anything in the last three years. I've disliked him in, yeah, which is weird because I don't say that for a lot. I can't say that for a lot of actors. Like, you can just put Josh Greeley in shit, and I'll enjoy it, and I it's, might it's, be more. It's, I hard, be, it's hard to I find something inclined, to dislike him in. I might be more inclined to watch a show if he's in it. Yeah, unless your unless your show is like How Not to Summon a Demon Lord, in which I'm never going to touch that fucking show. Um, <coughs> I, I'm sorry, I don't don't like that stuff. But I think there's for a cup for the first like 15 minutes or so of the movie, I actually couldn't realize it was him. And then when we started being around him more, I was like, oh, okay, that's Josh. Um, and it's now I get to do my rant. So when Clavius is running around at the beginning of the movie and oh like, just here we go, out, oh, shut no. the fuck up! I've been waiting for this. God damn it! Um, fun fact: I actually work like less than five minutes away from that park. That wasn't downtown Tampa movie. It's South Tampa. It's a different fucking thing. She's been it's having this rant for the half downtown. the day. South Tampa, where he would live, would be on McDill Air Force Base, which is not downtown! Anyway, Josh Gurley was really (laughs) great in this movie for a lot of things that people have said. I think that he gets a lot of, um... I like how he's able to get, like, a fake personality down on top of Clavis's already existing personality for when he's flirting with uh, Lucicia. Um... And I just genuinely just enjoy it's really hard because I can't stop sa- I've like said so many different things about Josh Grilly over the course of this podcast. I feel like I'm repeating myself. So I liked it a lot. I thought it was probably it was up there as one of the better performances in this film. It got across a lot of things. Um I think he got a lot of emotionality into it that wasn't over the top 
or and it was stunted just enough that you would believe this is a man breaking his programming. Uh, with that being mm. said, I'm going to pass it over to Sneebs. Yeah, this character is... Uh, he starts out very numb and slowly starts to crack as he comes to understand exactly the nature of his purpose in life. This struck... Um, he very much... The character of Clavis is very much a... a Project Ito sort of protagonist. This is the kind of guy who is an English major who read up a, a hell of a lot of Kafka and also is working as an armed forces black ops. Super I mean, soldier. how do you think us in like humanities and lit major gonna pay off our student loans? Boom! True, true facts. <laughs> Shoot to kill, damn. I say that as a person with the humanities degree. <laughs> well done. Uh yeah. Uh okay. Well <laughs> yeah. He doesn't know where to go from there! <laughs> I yeah, okay, that actually makes uh the horror is real. There is no reality, only madness. Um, yeah, you can see the uh, numbness that come that yeah, he brings to the performance between going on a, on a mission and going into a war zone, going past acts of genocide, and quipping back and forth with his teammates about uh, the nature of hell and uh, what's going on when we get back home. Cutting away to him drinking beer and wa and eating pizza while watching football with his friend, and slowly seeing him develop, uh, gain gain an interest in the mission, and we realize that there's more going on, and start to develop the relationship with Lucia. I didn't quite buy that. I didn't quite buy that he and Lucia had chemistry together, but I could sort of see it at least a one-sided infatuation starting to rise just from some of the some subtleties in the vocal performance and that uh, aforementioned flirtation with Lucia about again, if you can flirt about Kafka and uh, Noam Chomsky, you're uh, and make that sound like there's something going on. That's a very difficult task to do, and uh, Josh Grell gives it his all in that one. I mentioned before I wasn't fully on board with this character as... Um, I guess more than anything, I've seen this arc before of the soldier coming to realize he is mm -hmm. part of the evil that is the machine, but he... Uh, Josh does... Uh, do his best with that and while this is much more of a movie of ideas than characterization he tries his damnedest and by the time we do get to the end and the horrible realization that yes within every human being there is a deep biological structure in the brain that can enable genocide an understanding of this is possible and that the nature of but the military industrial complex Sorry? This is, it's true she said it also enables us to love. Yes, yes, and that's uh, that is one angle that I did appreciate about just the the uh, initial thing is that there is that great. It isn't something that just fetishizes the dark nihilism. This is why I like this movie more than Harmony. It acknowledges that there are <laughs> some things to be nihilistic about, but its characters don't just say, "Let's be nihilistic." Wahey! 
Uh, Why? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I could totally buy uh, the end after that final confrontation with uh, John Paul and the mourning for Lucia. You could see why Clavis does take the actions that he does and mm-hmm. is forced to face that the military-industrial complex of the society he has been sworn to defend is enabling worse kinds of evil the world over. And you can see how he has become radicalized at the end. And uh, that final performance of him describing going off to give a court hearing that's televised the world over, effectively infecting the English language, certainly the American cultural sphere, with uh, genocidal ideation. You can hear that kind of cold purpose that comes out in the end that Mm -hmm. is what sort of sold the performance to me in the end, that this is a man who has gone through hell, quite literally carries it inside of him, and is willing to use it to what he feels is a moral end. And while I don't agree with him at all, I can... What is it? Sympathize or empathize is the weaker of the two. I can understand why this person ends up making these actions. Yeah. Yeah, I I can empathize with why he does this, even though I still think it's a morally disgusting thing to do. Yeah. uh, Josh, congratulations. You made me feel some caring towards a person who is using rhetoric to enable genocide. Congratulations. I mean... It's as they say, hell is other people. <laughs> well, they hell is in your head. You won't have to worry about that problem for much longer. Exist- existentialism, Ooh. boys and girls. It's a hell of a thing. <laughs> Why can't we go for the happy existentialism of myth of Sisyphus? There I is no you. such thing as happy existentialism. We've tried. By gum, America has tried. If you, know, you study an idiot. useless and meaningless in the entire universe. But that's empowering. <laughs> One must imagine Sisyphus happy, for he can make that rock his own. There, there is and the idea that if you accept your own meaninglessness, you can be happier. You can there make the idea of that, but you know. I mean, if you if you know anything about Jean 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 Paul Sartre, and um, his his theories on existentialism, it's it's not good. <laughs> You're fucked. It's um, dealing with the shittiness of reality. Um, the uh, I there I would I will say that you can have happy existentialism. There, uh, you did have Colin Wilson from the UK, but he was yeah. a cuckoo bird. Yeah. And now that we have plumbed the depths of despair and reach aspire towards greater things, I am done talking <laughs> until final thoughts. And oh I have final boy. thoughts. Uh, side note for anyone who's very interested in the study of existentialism, there is a play that Jean-Paul Sartre wrote called No Exit. Y'all should read it. It's very fascinating. Um, Act it out. It's beautiful. I love it. Got to do some stuff with it in graduate school. Anyways, mm. uh, so obviously Clavis is the character we follow through and through, and he's the one character we essentially fully on screen fully see this transition from start to finish, where we're in the beginning. Clavis 
like basically like Sneeze was saying, he's very numb to the situation. He he doesn't feel pain. He just follows orders and is that cog in the machine. And over the course of the film, with his specifically with his interactions with Lucia and John Paul, you see his mindset start to change and his philosophy start to change and how he sees and views the world. Um, it's very interesting. And a very interesting scene too is, um, his therapy session with that therapist. Before- <laughs> therapist Sunny Straight. Therapist Sunny Straight. Before, <laughs> he- before they go on that mission to essentially kill a bunch of child soldiers in order to find John Paul. It- it's very intriguing because th- it's at that point where you really start seeing his- the-, the cogs in his brain kind of shift. And like, what if this isn't, is like, this is, is this really what should be done? Is this really what we have to do in order to achieve our goals? And going through that change and transition from being that mindless, numb cog in the machine to this free thinking, radical person, it's a very interesting progression and transition. And Josh portrays that very well. And like I, like I was saying earlier when we were talking about Alex and Leland, when I was saying those two are very important characters, there's a stark difference with how Clavis reacts to both of these characters. When Alex shoots and kills their target and he starts going into PTSD mode, Clavis has no qualms about shooting him and he does. Shoots him, kills him, done. Leland, on the other hand, when we see Leland bleeding out and saying his final words and just dying, Clavis is, at that point, softening up and becoming empathetic and, or sympathetic to Leland. And his, you start seeing more of his emotions come out instead of just being this stoic human being. And the progression is very, very interesting, and Josh portrays it very well. And this is a very, very strong performance to me, and if it wasn't for the nine other fucking actors that were that I wrote down, he I will admit Josh Greeley was actually one of my contenders for my best actor award for drama last year for the Debbies. Um, because this was such a very strong and powerful role and at how complex of a character Clavis is, how his philosophy changes, his uh, morality and his thinking changes. Um, it's a very, very, very interesting role for Josh to play. And it's, I think it was spectacularly done. And side note, side note, props to whoever decided the reference to Samuel Beckett. I love that. <laughs> mm. I love I waiting for the Humanity is so long that a lot of these references fly over my head. I re- I should really go back and get my masters. Yeah, I like. I, like I never read Kafka, but Samuel Beckett is my. I have. <laughs> I never read Kafka. I never read Kafka, but I did read Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett, and it's I love it. I actually started reading it a little bit at the beach yesterday. I for that's how funny this is right now to me. But um, I've read Kafka. I've been in. I've been in a modernism and postmodernism class. I'm a theater major, so I never had to do anything like that. But um, yeah, please it's... don't ever subject yourself to it. It was the worst. 
Oh boy. But anyway, I, I for me this is also one of my favorite performances of the entire film because this is such a complex character and I think Josh pulls it off rather flawlessly. On that note, I think we need to start wrapping this up. So let's move on to our final thoughts on the dub of this film. Lack, would you like to go first? Yes, uh, all around I think the dub was exceptional. Um, uh, as, I, as I probably implied before, I prefer Empire of Corpses over this, but that's just because I'm not a big fan of nihilism. Um, Fair. I don't but, think anybody really is a fan of nihilism, but uh, go on. Except for nihilists. <laughs> but, um, honestly, um, the dub itself is fantastic, and the fact that Funimation clearly put as much effort as they possibly could to get this right, I mean, having, not only it be an English dub, but having multiple different languages spoken... Mm-hmm in this yes. dub was fantastic. Even if that was in the original Japanese. And it helps the fact that the main characters were American. So that, that cross-cultural thing that sometimes anime dubs tend to have, where you've got Japanese characters who are speaking American accent in English, or Canadian accent in English, if you want to get specific. Um, but the, the fact that the main characters were, in fact, American actually helped to the fact that we had other languages and other dialects being spoken which was great and it, it added a, whole, a a very unique element to this dub that not a lot of you know english dubs get to have and that was really cool um everyone was cast very well i there was not one person who i felt like was out of place um the performances were great and uh the dialogue while it had its weird moments i i get why they did it and I, I kind of applaud them for it. So, ultimately, yes, I give this dub an A+. So. Before I move on to Amon, damn it, Sneeves! <laughs> I just checked Twitter and my notification, tonight's Dub Talk podcast recording. He retweeted basically this sign, this billboard sign that says, Hell is real. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if it makes you feel better, I didn't scream about it, but I decided to do a step up in Love Live and got a UR card again. <laughs> I mean, you did text Gigi and I about that. Anyway. No, this is the second time I've done that secretly while we've recorded and I've gotten a UR, so I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> so long as you pay attention, buddy. So long as you pay oh, attention. Oh, no, I was. I was. I know you were. Time. That's why I'm not mad. <laughs> I got Cyber Honoka, which is really cute. Happy birthday, Honk. <laughs> anyway, hell is clearly real based on that. So billboard. is Honoka. Almond, <laughs> um, what are your final thoughts on the dub of Genocide of Oregon? I liked it a lot. I thought this was a really well made dub. I think this is a challenging movie. I think this is the this is definitely the kind of thing where like like I agree this feels like something that could have made in the nineties. And I'm kind of happy it isn't, because it's also the kind of thing where if it had been made in the 90s, it would not have had to dub this nice. It's sort of one of those sort of <laughs> mid-tier... Way more F-words. Oh my god, so not many F-bombs. <laughs> You're not wrong! It was acceptable so in F-bombs. the 80s. In fact, the, the, the dubbing company probably would have paid the the uh, the animators to like make a more explicit sex scene. <laughs> oh god! Just You're really wrap it up. Titty. You're too old, Titty. You're uh, too old, Titty. Titty. God damn it. <sighs> I just want... If the day me and Lack meet, we're just gonna just look at each other and just go, Tibby. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how we're gonna meet. 
Just oh, a sage nod and just tippy. Someone needs to come to AB next year then. Uh. <laughs> or one of us needs to go to MAGFest. This is also true, one way or another. No one went to MAGFest. We didn't really know each other that well back then. But... Well, now you do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, continue, I'm on. Um, where was it? What was I talking about? <laughs> made in the '90s was the last thing about. Yeah, this. no, like this, this. I thought this is a really well-made dub, and clearly a lot of care and effort was put into this. As far as getting the tone right and getting, you know, accents and foreign languages and so on, like a lot of care and craft was put into this, which I appreciate because, like, I enjoyed this movie. Uh, this feels very much what Harmony was trying to be, but it didn't. It couldn't quite get over the weirdness of the book it was adapting to, like, be a good coherent narrative film the same way. Um, I was really happy, and I'd be remiss to not mention that this was the last thing Manglobe ever worked on before they imploded. Um, or started to work on, because they imploded before the film I mean, I mean, my, my understanding is the studio that picked it up was basically the exact same crew, just at a different company. Yes. Um, but I, th- I, I do think this is officially co-credited to Manglobe, so I think this is at least technically the last thing they worked on before the company went under. It yeah. looks gorgeous. No, as, like, as, far, as, far as, like, uh, as far as like a send-off for that company, like this looks great. Yeah. It looks like, like, like the animation is like you could confuse it for like a western animated film. Hmm. Oh, of hey, guys. hey guys, but we have a little bit of money left. We can save one project. Just funnel the money from the ending of Gangsta into this. <laughs> Ouch. Ooh. Ooh. That's the Ooh. second meanest thing I've said tonight. Good job. Come on, Gino anyway, Studios. Well, you know you want to do it. You're killing um, us, G. You're come killing on, us. Gino's. Make a proper ending for Gangsta. Do uh, it. Yeah. Yeah, I'll give is... you 20 whole American dollars. <laughs> Pick starting now. <laughs> Uh, any any other thoughts on one? Yeah, it's just a really well done movie. Like I feel this is the kind of like straightforward, weighty drama that I feel like can be hard to dub well because it, it hinges so much on you know ca- you know good casting and people having good correct acting chops for it. And I was right. very impressed with what they gave us. Okay, Megune. There it. This is a movie that talks about a lot of uh, socio-political stuff. I don't know if we... God, does this count as neoliberalism? I feel like this is something like my college professor would get like the biggest kick out of. Maybe. Like, yeah. This is like this is like straight up like something like I would talk about in like my humanities courses. Just like the Japanese view of like American socio-political society mm-hmm. and are like caught like are caught up in the idea of like national security and consumerism all at once and uh, the idea that like. Especially, like, identity is tied to digitization and all that fun junk, but I could talk about that for hours, but we're here to talk about the dub, and the dub is fantastic for this movie. Um, God, I would actually- I haven't seen the dub of Harmony, so I can't say it's the best of the dubs I can't- I can't either. I haven't seen it. This is is probably a stronger dub by dint of the fact that the material it's working with is better. Yes. Yeah, and, like, I, I think personally, like, if you gave me overall, like, favorite movie out of the three, I would totally say Empire of Corpses because that movie is a fucking ton of fun. <laughs> I would say this might be the stronger dub. Mm. I think the accent works a little bit tighter. I think that um, just by the nature of the movie, there's a lot more tightness that's around. Not saying that the Empire of Corpses dub is bad at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Um, 
But yeah, no, I'm very impressed by Clifford Chapin, and I don't think he's necessarily made a directed a bad dub at this stuff. Have I personally think he's directed shows with weaker material? Yes, uh, but in everything he's done as a director, he puts 100% of his heart and soul and blood and sweat and tears and sleep deprivation into it. So <laughs> We never got to the story of go the fuck to sleep when this came out. Yeah, like, apparently he was directing this and, like, two other fucking things, so he wasn't sleeping, and I think, no, I think he was directing this, his simuldub for this season, plus moving into his own house. Yes. Clifford. I think that's what it was. Take also, care this of was, yourself. This was, this was, this was, this is also, mind you, the same story where, out of nowhere, he was adopted into our weird dysfunctional family. Like, yeah, apparently, this is how apparently, friends with us, but whatever. No, apparently when I go mom-chan on people, that's when this happens. Because I apparently mom-chaned him and told him to go the fuck to sleep. <laughs> this shit went weird. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, Megan. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's all my thoughts. I would just also like to say that Andrew finally realized that on our uh, my little personal server, I changed his name to Birthday Horror, and he just now remembered. He just now realized. <laughs> Good job. Sneeps. Well what are your final thoughts I'll... on the dub of Genocide Organ? This is a thing that has to be dubbed in order to be appreciated by English speakers. Given how language is such a core part of this pro of this thing, it's something that um, needs that immediacy of uh, the language. It's hard. This is something that could not be read. It's the same way you couldn't make a film out of Babel 17. Uh, it's uh, the Samuel Delaney thing. It's something whose very um, way in which it is told uses the medium that it has to deliver its message. And in order to pick that up best, you can't get that by reading it on the screen. There's so much that would be lost. And this dub in particular uh, really hit some very good points. Uh, we're joking about the uh, you know the Big Mac and the Spanish Inquisition quips, but those very artifacts of Western American culture are so central to the points this movie is making. You, I don't think you could watch this in sub and get much out of it as an English speaker. This needs to be dubbed. It is very much a critique of American foreign policy. And I have nothing else to say than what is the ugliest part of your body? It's your mind. Thanks, Frank. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, I guess that leaves me. So, like I was saying at the start, when talking about Cliff as a director for this, this is probably the most complex, mature, and dark, in terms of themes, project that I've ever seen him direct thus far. And since, and since, honestly, because, again, I, I, I'm, I'm very curious to see him at some point going back to such heavy material as this because there are very very strong philosophical themes in this philosophical and political themes in this film that I think lose their meaning and their complexity if 
the dub was not handled properly. So given that, I think the performances are outstanding and well done. The writing, even with some of the changes in the adaptation, this, again, the Spanish Inquisition thing, given with those changes, they're actually, the changes are done in a good way to the point where you wouldn't notice it. And it just seems like it flows right into the story rather naturally. So I really, really enjoy this film a lot. It's the film's story itself is not generally what I'm used to, what I normally get into. Sci-fi usually is the weaker, one of the weaker genres that I have a hard time getting into. But given the complexity of this story and how well done the English dub is, I managed to get into it very, very well. And I think it's it's honestly from last year in terms of films that were released, it was def it's definitely up there for me as one of my favorite films from last year that got released. And so I have to give kudos to Cliff and Deborah and the cast involved in this project because oh boy <laughs> this is certainly a very interesting ride and it just piqued my philosophical existentialism existentialism brain because when I studied when I was in a philosophy class in my undergrad program the one section that caught most of my interest was existentialism and this just screams a good amount of it so I might have to go back and read some Jean-Paul Sartre right now. Because, oh boy. <laughs> I want to take a Jean-Paul's napinay right now. Oh, me too. <laughs> Again, if you like your existentialism, like I do, go read Jean-Paul Sartre's No Exit. It's a fantastic, mm -hmm. fantastic play. Yes. Um, anyway, I think on that note, we are mm. good for the night. Unless anybody do... else says anything else. For book recommendations as well... Dave Grossman's On Killing, The Psychological Cost of Learning to Kill in War and Society is a good complimentary reading for this. And I realized I have become the guy who gives book recommendations in a cartoon podcast. God, what I have mean, I become? still, it, it's... It's a good read. The hey, I'm on. Yeah? You got a dusty old song for tonight? Oh, do I? <laughs> uh, do, we, so... do you want to give it, or do you want me to just start going into the outro? We want to give. I can, I can, I can give it. Um, All right, what do you got? So, uh, so the the book this is based on was originally published in two thousand nine, which I think, uh, particularly with the way it views uh, like kind of American capitalist culture and this obsession with security, feels very timely. Uh, so I thought I'd pick a, a, a band from around then that I enjoyed highly that seems to have that same mood to it. Uh, I'm going to recommend. Anything from the first album by The Secret Machines. Their first album is called Now Here Is Nowhere. They're a very good band from Austin, Texas, who I thought should have been really big, and no one cared about them except me. It's very sad. Uh, if you want a particular <laughs> song, I would say recommend uh, First Wave Impact. Okay. Good to know. Oh, fun fact. And um, this is actually from that little little featurette that's on the um, DVD Blu-ray combo pack. So, fun fact. When Cliff was doing research into this film, because one of the questions that was brought up and asked is, what do you think happened after the film ended? Uh, I guess in some of the research that he did for this film, uh, there are there's some articles that state that what happened in genocidal Oregon 
eventually leads into what happens in Harmony, supposedly. I mean that that mm. would make that would make sense in the backstory of Harmony, like a big catastrophic catastrophic event happened, and it's not particularly gone over. I actually actually I, I saw that same feature and I was doing some research on my own and I noticed yeah. a few other places that suggested they are supposed to be in the same timeline. So Yeah, but um, but Cliff himself, he doesn't he he's he's of the theories that it doesn't link together. He he prefers not thinking it links together. It's a little neat. It's in that line. It's a little bit of a weak link, but I mean it's understandable. Um I need to reminder I need to watch Harmony just to say that I did. Anyway, on that <sighs> no. note if you are interested in seeing the film Genocidal Organ, uh, there's the only place to stream it legally uh, is you can either rent or purchase it digitally through Amazon Video. Otherwise, it is not available for legal streaming. The only other way to see the film is through the Blu-ray DVD uh, ultraviolet copy set uh, from Funimation Entertainment. Thank you, Lilac, for that ultraviolet copy. I provided, like, five goddamn ultraviolet codes to people for this film. <sighs> but, um, yeah. L and you can, you Lilac, was I the only other person who bought this movie? I feel like you... Well, no. Sneeves had to buy it. That's right. Sneeves had to buy it because we... I tried... When, after we recorded Napping Princess, we, I tried giving it to him, but apparently it doesn't no. work in Canada. So. No. so what I did was I was a good citizen and engaged in the capitalist structures of the world <laughs> around me to prove that I am a healthy member of the nation state. Good night, everyone. God bless. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the only other way aside from streaming it through Amazon Video is through the physical release, uh, again, from Funimation. So uh, you will more than likely find this at your local retailer, wherever you find your anime, your anime DVDs and stuff like that. It's funny because, what was it? Almond, remember when we were at Anime last year uh -huh. and we went to Bull Moose? Yeah. And oh. I found that random copy of Genocide of Oregon out of nowhere? Yeah. Remember that? Yeah, that was great. So yeah, yeah you, right. you you you'll probably find it like your local Best Buy. I doubt your Walmart would have it. Um, right stuff obviously would have it. Funimation site obviously has it. Uh, but you'll you'd be able to find it very easily. Um, if you are interested in anything that we do here at Dub Talk, of course, the best way to keep keep following us is through. Our YouTube channel, you're already kind of here, uh, so feel free to subscribe here. We put up new episodes every week, sometimes twice a week, depending on what's going on. Um, for, I know for the past couple months we've been doing two episodes a week because of our wonderful Summer at the Movie special, uh, but I think we're downgrading to once a week unless we start doing summer episodes. I don't know what the plan is. It's the start of August when we're recording this damn thing. Um, and let's see. And we also are, are on Twitter, Tumblr, Twitch, and Instagram, all at Dub Talk Podcast. Uh, and if you really like what we do here and are, 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 are great people and want to um, help support us in another form or fashion, uh, we do have a Kofi, a coffee account, uh, if you wanted to support us in that kind of way. And if you do, we do greatly appreciate it. Uh, as for any of the individual people here, you if you want to know more or see more from us, of course, my name is Stephanie. I am on Twitter at Lalic Anime Review, where I just post daily life and all the crap that goes with it. If you wanna, if you wanna follow anything that Megan does, she is on Twitter at Queen Era Two, uh, where she shit posts for half the goddamn day. 
Yep. <laughs> if you want to follow anything that Amon does, he is on Twitter at AmonDuelUS, uh, where he'll occasionally post more Dusty Old songs, as well as fun other little things here and there. You like old uh, comic like- books, kids? I got <laughs> your number. Woo! Uh, Lack, you can follow him on Twitter at LackTheWatcher, uh, where he just, I don't know what he usually posts. He's sometimes quiet over there, but... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, trying to get back into anime reviewing and voice acting. So, yeah. Woohoo. And then Sneeze, of course, on Twitter is Uncle Azrael, uh, where he he's more of the intellectual and existentialist and ph- philosophical brain that will tweet pictures of billboards that say hell is, what is it, hell is real. <laughs> hell is <laughs> other people. Hell is and other people. And by that, I mean the extended family. Correct. <laughs> True facts. Um, but I think otherwise than that, that is it for us tonight. So thank you so, so much for tuning in uh, to the season finale of Summer at the Movies and to listen. And if you've been listening and following us uh, to Summer at the Movie, listening to Summer at the Movies in general, we thank you so much. It, it's been a fun, fun summer. And if you like those Summer at the Movie episodes, let us know, and we'll we'll come. We we'll, we might come back for a third season next year in 2019. Uh, anything else anybody wants to say before we call it a night? I'm good. I'm good. La luli la lo. The magic <laughs> words are squeamish ossifrage. Outbreak. Four two three four two. I don't even know what you're spelling right now. I think that's a Metal Gear Solid reference. You know it would be really good right now, stuff? What? McDonald's. No! McDonald's. I swear to God. McDonald's. McDonald's. Oh no, the deep structures of language. McDonald's. McDonald's. Good night, everybody. I fucking quit. Good night, everybody. Have a good night. Good night, nerds. Have a good night, everybody, and don't talk about my friends.